welcome back to CGSW 90.9 Calgary. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of the next hour of programming and I'm going to introduce you to the first ever episode of Energy Voices. I'm the co-founder of an organization called Student Energy that is focused on building a movement of young leaders that are committed to creating a sustainable energy future in our world. We're so proud to partner with CGSW to introduce this new show as a means to stoke and create a vibrant dialogue on energy. Before we dive into what is going to be an action-packed hour of programming, I want to first touch on why. Why does a show like this need to exist? Why are CGSW and Student Energy partnering to introduce this show at this time? For me, it goes back to the fact that Energy is without question one of the most contentious, emotional, and impactful industries on earth. Our very systems of movement, communication, and quality of life are deeply intertwined with the energy system. Our current system is facing some staggering challenges. Over the next 40 years, our greatest human challenge is staggeringly simple. How can we provide the quality of life and resources that energy brings to all citizens on Earth while simultaneously ensuring that our Earth and our environment are sustainable for all generations that will come after us? To solve this challenge, there is no silver bullet. There is no perfect technology or single strategy that will get us there. Tackling the great challenges of our energy industry will take creativity, passion, ingenuity, and real meaningful dialogue. It is with these challenges in mind that we begin Energy Voices. The current debate on energy has degenerated to simple sound bites and emotion-based stone throwing. The public sphere of informed, intelligent dialogue is eroding, and this show is a small step to take that back. Over the coming months, you will hear from a variety of experts and a variety of perspectives on all sides of this energy equation. You will hear from people who you agree with and people who you disagree with because that's what real dialogue is. It's passionate people sharing their views and insights with the goal of creating a real, healthy, and vibrant dialogue on energy. We encourage you to participate. Use Facebook and use Twitter to engage, post questions, suggest panelists, and, and share your opinion. If you want to participate alongside please use our Twitter or our Facebook accounts. We can be found at twitter.com slash studentenergy or facebook.com slash studentenergyorg. You can also learn more about Student Energy, our programs, and our beliefs at studentenergy.org. We're going to be using the hashtag Energy Voices on both Twitter and on Facebook, so please use that for any comments, thoughts, or concerns you have. On this show and all future shows, we're going to be tackling these significant energy challenges through a variety of formats. We're going to be using long-form debates, we'll explore new groundbreaking technology, we'll do deep dives into case studies on sustainability and action, we'll highlight student projects, and most of all, we'll bring a deep passion for informed, balanced, and progressive debate back into the world of energy. Our greatest challenge is also our greatest opportunity, and we're thrilled that you're along for the ride. Welcome to Energy Voices. On this month's episode of Energy Voices, we're going to dive into a future-oriented look at fracking. What does the future of fracking hold in our industry and from an environmental perspective? We're also going to look at a fascinating new technology called direct air capture and finish the show off with a segment called Energy Hacks. This is a fun piece designed to show you ways you can save your own personal energy usage, especially considering the winter temperatures outside. 
We're going to kick things off with a segment called This Month in Energy, where we review the top energy headlines from around the world. The news in energy markets. China has been making energy power moves, in all aspects really, but they recently dropped $6.5 billion to finance a Pakistani nuclear plant. Pakistan has found it difficult to attract investment from the U.S. due to concerns over nuclear proliferation. With this investment, China confirms its strategic support for Pakistan's energy development. Meanwhile, Norway received some exciting news this month. The world's seventh largest oil exporter saw its sovereign wealth fund, and also the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, reach $828.6 billion this month which, when compared to the country's population stats, makes every Norwegian a millionaire. The news on renewables. The price of battery storage technology is one of the major hindrances to the widespread adoption of renewables. But a new organic battery created by Harvard scientists could change that game. This new organic battery would bring the current $700 per kilowatt hour storage cost for conventional metal-reliant flow batteries down to $27 per kilowatt hour. In 2013, investment in renewables fell by 11%. At a recent investment conference, investors and climate policy advocates asserted that by 2030, investment in renewables needs to reach the one trillion mark. Suggestions called for pension funds and institutional investors to commit to investing 5% of their portfolios in clean energy, compared to the current 1% in OECD countries. Investors need to be more strict in their evaluation of companies that are causing high levels of CO2 emissions, and the creation of bonds and asset-backed securities are critical to enable retail and institutional investors to access the renewable market. The news in energy access. The UN and World Bank recently announced the financing needs required to deliver modern energy access to the one out of five people currently living without electricity. The number, 600 to 800 billion dollars a year will be needed between now and 2030, along with a doubling in renewable energy adoption and energy efficiency. Financial institutions, development agencies, governments, and the other stakeholders that steer this global ship need to shift from fossil-based centralized grid mindsets to off-grid renewable energy-based paradigms in order to electrify the rural world. Now for oil. The future of half of Abu Dhabi's oil field production is up in the air now that 75-year partnerships with Western companies, Exxon, Shell, Total, and BP, are set to expire. When these contracts are up this month, Abu Dhabi's national oil company will take control of these fields, It will be interesting to see what Abu Dhabi's political powers do with the resource that has economically transformed the country. We've all been following the polarizing pipeline discussions in North America, and while these discussions have continued to heat up, rail cars carrying crude oil from the Bakken and other U.S. regions has increased dramatically. In 2013, we saw more oil spill from rail cars than in the previous four decades. Yes, From 1972 to 2012, 800,000 gallons spilled in total. In 2013 alone, 1.15 million gallons spilled. In the world of crazy climate change discussions, 
A recent updated report from academic James Powell takes all credibility away from climate change deniers. He shows that only one in the 9,136 peer-reviewed authors who published from November 2012 to December 2013 rejected global warming. Emperor penguins are now officially on the near-threatened list as warmer temperatures render their traditional breeding grounds melted. The situation for these little guys is not good. The thin sea ice that they normally rock out on is forming later in the season and therefore forcing them to climb thick, high ice shelves. It's a struggle for the little birds. Back to China's power moves. The country is on track to surpass the EU's per capita CO2 emissions any day now. Energy markets. News from China. The powerhouse nation spent $4.3 billion on smart grids in 2013, an amount that equals one-third of the world's total spending on smart grids to date. This shows China is taking decentralized energy systems seriously. Energy access. In Iceland, engineers have developed the world's first magma-enhanced geothermal energy system. The success of this endeavor could prove to be a revolution in energy efficiency in high-temperature geothermal areas of the world. Alternative Energy Chernobyl was a disaster that really changed the world with respect to how we evaluate the nuclear energy option. At the moment, engineers are in the process of creating the contraption that will contain the nuclear disaster zone. In Germany, Plans to connect renewable energy from the north with high demand in the south has proven to be a divisive issue for the nation. Protests have broken out in the south against the high voltage line that would help distribute growing renewable capacity to the nuclear-reliant southern regions. Fossil fuels. A recent study by the University of Toronto shows that levels of toxic air pollutants in Alberta's oil sands may be higher than original estimates. The specific pollutants being observed are called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and they can be highly carcinogenic. Climate change. In the United States, President Obama's executive actions on climate change are being reviewed by the Supreme Court. Specifically, the justices are evaluating whether Obama's authority to regulate emissions from coal plants was justified. Thanks for listening. That's This Month in Energy. This month in energy with us, Jenny. You're tuned into Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Up next, we have a discussion on how we can actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Join me in welcoming, we've got Jeff Holmes, who's the business development lead for Carbon Engineering, which is a, a fascinating company based in Calgary that's working on direct air capture and storage. So. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. If you want to maybe give us a little bit of background on who you are and uh, carbon engineering as a company, and then we'll we'll dive into some questions we've got for you today. Sounds great, Sean. Thanks uh, for having me, first off, and hope this kind of contributes to the start of a really cool uh, series that you guys are going to produce. So um, yeah, Jeff Holmes, I'm here from Carbon Engineering, where I serve as business development lead. And uh, Carbon Engineering is a company that was founded to... Uh, commercialize, develop, and commercialize technology to directly extract CO2 from ambient air. So this is really different from flue stack capture, which captures off of point source emissions. And uh, that's important to try and tackle because about 60% of our emissions don't come out of point sources. 
a little bit of background on myself. Um, I was born and raised here in Calgary and came up through sort of the hard sciences and math stream and after a bunch of years of sort of traveling the world and guiding and being in the outdoors and kind of realizing what we have at risk in terms of the environment and the ecosystems and uh, human well-being as well, I, I wanted to turn those skills to a problem that was relevant to environment and climate. And that's really what led me to study under a guy named David Keith um, on this topic of direct air capture and eventually led to the uh, job that I have now at Carbon Engineering. Cool. And so for any of our listeners at home that might not be familiar with air capture, just give us a broad overview of what air capture actually is. Sure thing. So, I mean, there's a lot of different tools that we can use to control emissions, everything from policy to scrubbing mm -hmm. CO2 out of flu stacks. Um, but there's a lot of sectors of our economy where the emissions that, that are occurred uh, occur diffuse in both time and, and space. Think mm -hmm. of cars, airplanes, lawnmowers, even CO2 that's emitted by decaying plant matter when we mm -hmm. when we mow down a rainforest to plant crops or range, range cattle. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those emissions really aren't amenable to, to being, being dealt with at source. Uh, so the whole idea about air capture is that one day we could build big industrial scale facilities that use giant economies of scale, big heavy industrial engineering to tackle this problem to make it really cheap and tractable by capturing emissions directly out of the air to negate those emissions that can't be stopped at source. And so what are the economics of air capture? Maybe give us the example of where they're at today and to your point, uh, a future where there's large scale industrial plants. What could a future for air capture look like? Sure, so I mean, really the wisdom about pursuing this as an option from, from a business perspective or from an environmental perspective hinges on cost. Mm -hmm. um, and actually when I started in the field five, six years ago now, uh, there really wasn't very many reliable estimates of cost. There were a few academic papers out there that speculated yeah. it. And there was a big debate um, ranging. Some people were saying that it would be incredibly cheap and that it could solve the whole climate problem easier than the other things we were doing. Other people were saying it was so expensive, it wasn't even worth trying. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, a lot of the work we've done at CE has been to do really diligent engineering and cost estimation to try and narrow that that band and mm -hmm. get a real estimate on this, on, on the cost and the prospects of this technology so people can figure out how to use it. Yeah. And where's, where's that at today? So sure, looking so, from academic papers five years ago to, to what you guys are working on today, where's that cost curve come to? So that cost curve for us, we, we think that we've got a system on paper today that mm -hmm. if we can deliver it with nuts and bolts, will come in between 100 and $150 per ton CO2 captured. Okay. So a lot of people right off the bat, if they're familiar with CCS or they're familiar with the climate uh, world, will say, oh gosh, that's pretty expensive. That's mm -hmm. not very competitive. Uh, but I'd point out a couple things on that. First of all, air capture, direct air capture and CCS aren't competitors. You'd yeah. never use a DAC system to try and mitigate emissions directly from a flu stack, you'd use a CCS system. Yeah. And what you'd use the DAC system for is to negate emissions that come from those other parts of the economy that I was referencing, like cars and airplanes and so on, that are actually much more expensive to deal with. Yeah. And the second point I'd make about the cost is that though 100 or 150 per ton might sound expensive, mm -hmm. if you do the math, you sharpen your pencil and do it for yourself, uh, that cost turns out to be cheaper than a lot of ways we're dealing with those emissions today, either yeah. hydrogen cars, fuel cell cars, uh, feed-in tariffs on solar. So, yeah. you know, really air capture um, probably has a role to play um, 
and to do so more cost-effectively than some of the things we're pursuing uh, in today's economy. The thing that's really interesting about direct air capture for me as well is that it can operate independent of all other bodies. It's it's a technology that really can work in isolation that even to your point about hydrogen fuel cells or other emissions reductions technologies, they sort of need to be working with an existing coal-fired power plant or have a source where's Direct air capture can sort of be its own lone ranger working in the field. Absolutely. So if you want to mitigate emissions from a bunch of cars that are out there on the road, you've either got a choice of converting, say, 300,000 cars over to fuel cells or hydrogen, Mm -hmm. or you can build one industrial scale air capture facility out in the middle of nowhere where land is cheap. Yeah. And you can negate those emissions uh, from the same 300,000 cars with one plant. And does that land placement make a difference? Does, if you're working even from either a cost perspective or from an emissions reduction perspective, does doing it out on the open prairies in Canada make a difference versus putting it in downtown Beijing where there's really concentrated emissions? Not at all. Um, This is a question we get all the time and and some folks out there will sort of confuse the concepts of pollution with with CO2 and Mm -hmm. and quite often they are, are linked because things that emit CO2 also emit pollution. Yeah. But whereas air particulates are pretty short-lived and, and rain out or settle out of the atmosphere, so they're a really localized phenomena. Mm-hmm. I mean, the air in Beijing can get terrible, but if you go 100 miles out to, to sea, then uh, the air quality is going to be a lot better. Yeah. CO2, by contrast, is very long-lived, so it mixes throughout the entire atmosphere. And you can have localized drawdowns due to a rainforest or a cornfield sucking up a bunch of CO2 on a calm day. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, if you've got even modest winds around your location, you're going to find very, very similar CO2 concentrations in the middle of Kansas or Antarctica or the top (laughs) of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, where all the original measurements were done. So that gives us this freedom of location to capture from the atmosphere, wherever the siting permits and land and and demand for CO2 uh, suit our fancy. Yeah. And so can you give us maybe some examples of some case studies that you guys are working on or some projects that you're working on, some size, scale, scope? Just give us a, a, a peek under the skirt as far as what carbon engineering is working on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to. So really what carbon engineering's progression has been about is sort of bootstrapping up in size, um, tackling a big you know, new concept in the energy field that's is very infrastructure heavy, very capital heavy, mm-hmm. really different from putting together the next Facebook or Twitter that's made from ones yeah. or zeros. Yeah. You know, it takes a long time to put nuts and bolts together. It takes a lot of money too. So you got to start small and sort of kindle up from there, yeah. kindle your fire. So we started with a lot of pen and paper engineering, um, a lot of work in our, in our lab at almost beaker scale, test tube scale. And from there, we started building successively larger and more complicated prototypes. So we had little pieces of equipment that would sit on a bench top or something that would sit in a warehouse of one of the vendors for the pieces of equipment that um, that need to be uh, assembled together to make our system. Um, and where we reached to over the last couple of years is we had a big device that sat outdoors and weighed about 15 tons and yeah. captured several hundred uh, kilos of CO2 out of the air every day. Yeah. And that was just a little test piece to give us a bunch of the data we needed to understand the performance of a few of those key components. And really the most exciting thing that's that's happening now is we're taking that another step further. So we're going to build a system that's both 10 times as big yeah. and has the entire rest of the componentry of an eventual full-scale plant, and it's all going to be integrated together. So yeah. 
with any luck in about a year's time, you're going to be able to come out to our, our operational site and see a whole bunch of equipment sitting together, absorbing CO2 out of the air and producing purified stream at the back end. Is there going to be an active participant component where people can just blow onto the device and have their own CO2 captured on the spot? There is now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, can you walk us through sort of the actual specific technology? So I'm a particle of CO2 in the atmosphere. How do I, how does your technology remove me and store me in some way, shape or form? Yeah, you bet. So CO2 is really dilute in the air. Only about 0.04% of the air is CO2. So that's one out of every 2,500 molecules. Uh, So what we have to do is is we have to build a big uh, component of the system that we call an air contactor that just sits out there and ingests massive quantities of air. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever seen a cooling tower, bring that kind of image to mind. It sits there ingesting air. And instead of being filled with, with water that's rejecting heat to the air to cool the water, what we do is we fill our system with a bunch of liquid chemicals that want to capture CO2. They want to bind with CO2. So the air passes through the air contactor. Those chemicals react with the CO2 preferentially and absorb them into the solution. And the air that comes out the back end has something like 80% less CO2 in it. Mm-hmm. Now that's only half the, uh, half the challenge. From there, we've got to take that liquid solution that's now got the CO2 embodied in it, and we've got to do several chemical processing steps that both take that CO2 back out in a purified form that we can compress and sell, and also make remake the original capture chemical so that it's a closed-loop process, not requiring continuous inputs of uh, make, makeup materials. And, and what's the predominant, uh, you talked about the chemical solution that's used to remove the CO2. What's the predominant uh, sort of chemical makeup of that? Yeah, it's uh, really not scary stuff. It's yeah. it's called sodium hydroxide or potassium hydroxide. I mean, that name might sound fancy and chemical to yeah. some folks, but uh, really it's it's just a highly alkaline uh, thing that's found in, in Drano. It's used in the preparation of certain fish dishes in Scandinavia. You yeah. you can eat small quantities of stuff. So it's nothing nothing too scary, but it really likes to react with uh, CO2. Yeah, that's fascinating. And from a, a technological advancement perspective, what are some of the sticking points as far as either getting the cost down or scaling the technology? Sort of what are those hurdles that you guys are working through? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, one of our strategies as carbon engineering has been able to, to being sorry, to pick uh, components and process elements that are pretty low risk, that mm-hmm. are tried and true somewhere else in, in the economy or in industry, and then to knit a lot of those together, modify them where need be, and bring them all together to, to blend them into the system that works for us. So because we're sort of leaning back on all this technology that's been shown to work somewhere else or being demonstrated, there's there's not a huge you know, succeed versus fail risk at this point. There's really no question that this will work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real questions that are left for us are the specifics of how well each component will perform, how, you know, how much throughput will get through one system and, and thus how much it'll contribute to the overall cost of, of capturing the CO2. So really what we're dealing with is it now is uncertainties in the cost. And of course, if they come in High, it makes our business case uh, harder. If they come in low, it makes our business case easier. That said, there's a couple of other companies in the field pursuing pretty novel solid adsorption systems, so where you actually get CO2 to bind onto a solid surface, and those are a little more risky. There's still some succeed or fail risk there. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, I'll do a bit of 
humble bragging for carbon engineering. Um, it's fascinating to see that you guys are one of the finalists for the Virgin Earth Challenge. And so anyone unfamiliar with the Virgin Earth Challenge, it's a $25 million cash prize uh, started by Richard Branson. There's a panel of judges that includes Al Gore. And I believe there's 11 companies that are finalists. And the, the goal is to uh, be the first company to remove a megaton of uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. And so carbon engineering is one of the finalists for that. And we're, we're proud of you guys for, for making it to the, to that level. And I just wanted to get a sense from you of, um, who are some of the other, uh, competitors and finalists that are there and, and what are you guys doing that's different or taking, how are you taking a different approach than the remaining Virgin Earth finalists? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're really proud to be in those 11 finalists. I mean, the field started with, I think, over 2,500 applications that were actually worth reviewing by technical experts. And we've whittled it, well, they whittled it down to 11 of us. So yeah. we're pretty excited to be in that uh, group of 11. And I think among our peers, we're re regarded as a pretty strong contender. So hopefully we hopefully we have a chance at it. Um, it would be a wonderful honor and a big another big uh, boost to the company. Yeah. Um, they really, they, they chose finalists from several different fields. There's the full-on sort of industrial mechanized, you know, direct scrubbing of CO2 out of the air approach like, like we're doing. There's four companies uh, from that field still in the prize. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple that are looking at using biomass. So where, whereas we use a chemical to capture CO2 from the air, there's a couple other companies looking at just using plant matter and mm -hmm. biomass, which captures CO2 from the air anyways. Yep. You grow up a bunch of plant matter, you dry it out and you combust it in a furnace to make energy. So you can both create energy and um, sequester CO2 that was captured from the air at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, that suffers in the way of economics a little bit so far. There's there's niches where that'll probably succeed, but, um, but there's certain drawbacks as well. Uh, then there's two or three finalists that are use that are looking at using sort of existing chemicals that exist in in geology, certain rock formations that are exposed around the world, and using those to to augment their natural absorption of CO2. Mm -hmm. There there are actually rocks and chemicals that that just sit there absorbing little bits of CO2 out of the air, and if we were to fracture them or or augment them in some way, they'd capture more. So pretty uh, out of the box idea, yeah. but interesting nonetheless. It's, I always find it fascinating and uplifting that there are people around the world that are working on and looking at that sort of thing. Yeah, you always want to beat away at those long shots, even yeah. even if they look like a bit of a slim bet. Yeah. And, and really one of the other interesting ones is, is this uh, competitor called Alan Savory and the Savory Institute who's looking at changing the way we graze cattle and livestock uh, to cause vegetation regeneration in arid climates. And if you grow a bunch of vegetation where it didn't used to exist, you're drawing CO2 down on a net basis. So, you know, potentially we have more livestock, better vegetation and drawing CO2 down as well. So pretty compelling idea. The, yeah. the problem is, is proving that it works and that it lasts. Yeah, so we've, we've all got our challenges really. Yeah. And if people want to follow along with the carbon engineering story and uh, your progress on the technology or towards the Virgin Earth Challenge, what's the best way and, and when do you think the finalist will be crowned for the, the challenge? Well, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think if they crown a finalist, we're, we're all going to hear about it on the news. I, yeah. I may wake up and learn about it just the same as you. <laughs> um, but you can, you can always check our website. It's www.carbonengineering.com. That's all one word and 
we try and keep that fair, uh, fairly up to date. Yeah. Uh, the Virgin Earth Challenge um, has their own website as well. I can't remember if the URL ends in .com or .org, so just type it into Google. But uh, either of those will keep you up to date. And we're hoping sooner rather than later for the award of the prize. But all that said, we're, we're planning to commercialize and succeed and make a business out of this, whether we get a slice of that prize or not it would it would certainly be gravy but it's not anything we're we're counting on or it's not even our core focus yeah well we really appreciate the the time to come in and walk us through carbon engineering and air capture storage as a technology and we'll have to have you back for an update uh either as the victorious champions of the challenge or just to hear an update on how the business is going and and how you've tackled some of the cost and technical issues i'll be happy to do it sean and thanks for having me today appreciate it cheers Okay, I'm really excited for our next segment. Today, we're going to have our first ever debate as part of the Student Energy Voices radio show. The first one we're going to do is on the future of fracking. Fracking is one of the most uh, interesting and complex and contentious issues in energy today. And I'm really excited to have uh, David Brown and Jay Switzer join us for uh, a debate on the future of fracking. So to introduce our two panelists, uh, Dave Brown is the VP of Communications and Marketing for TriCan Well Services. Uh, he's a professional engineer who's been with TriCan since 1997, before they've even fracked their first well. And prior to leading the global, global marketing and communications function, Mr. Brown held the position of Corporate Director of Technology, where he was responsible for the continued advancement of petroleum technology throughout all of TriCan's regions. Jay Switzer is the co-director of National Consulting and Projects for the Pembina Institute. Jason Holds leads Pembina's National Consulting and Projects, joining Pembina in April 2011 after nearly a decade in international development and corporate environmental management. He holds master's degrees in environmental engineering and in public policy from MIT and is a Harvard-trained environmental mediator. So thank you so much, Jay and Dave, for joining us today. So we're going to dive right into some questions, and the way we're going to structure this is we're going to have Dave and Jay each give a little bit of background on their perspective. So Dave's going to represent for us the industry perspective on fracking and give us a great overview of some of the technologies uh, and background and the history of fracking. And then Jay is going to do a good, good overview for us on the environmental perspective on fracking. So some of the major questions and considerations we need to think about from an environmental perspective. We're then going to kick off with a few open-ended questions that we can use to just really get a sense uh, of a, the dialogue and the conversation that we need to be having as a global society around fracking. So to, to dive right in, Dave, I'm going to direct the first question to you. Can you give us a, a short overview of what exactly the technology behind fracking is? Uh, to, for our listeners and anyone that's unfamiliar, what's actually going on underground? So touch on what is fracking, the technology, and is, as well the differences and similarities between shale gas and shale oil. Yes, John. Uh, before any hydraulic fracturing takes place, the well has to be drilled and the well bore constructed. Oil and gas is found deep underground in layers of sedimentary rock. Specifically, the oil and gas in is in pore spaces inside what looks like solid rock to the naked eye. Hydraulic fracturing is a post-drilling technique used to connect the oil and gas in the rock layer to the well bore so it can be brought to sur sur uh, surface. As I said, before hydraulic fracturing takes place, the well is drilled into the rock layer containing the oil and gas. Steel pipe, called casing, is run into the well bore, 
and the space between the rock and the steel is filled with cement. This is a specially designed oil field cement. After the drilling and wellbore construction process is complete, the under, underground rock layers that contain fresh water are protected by two sets of steel casing and cement. The cement isolates all the water layers from all the oil and gas layers, and all the oil and gas layers are isolated from each other. To get the maximum recovery uh, from oil and gas from the well, uh, oil and gas layers cannot be connected to other layers of oil and gas, or they will flow into those layers and never be recovered. The industry has always done a good job of isolating the layers, including wells that are hydraulically fractured. This is done to protect the environment and to maximize the recovery of oil and gas from that rock layer. After the well bore is constructed, uh, we then put holes in steel casing and spot, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we, we put holes in the steel casing and in a spot specifically to where we want to initiate the fracture. Uh, this spot is usually thousands of feet below freshwater layers. To create the fracture, water is pumped down the well and it pressures up against the rock until it cracks. The water contains chemical and uh, these chemicals are similar to the uh, chemicals that you can find in a, any hot tub. There are dilute concentrations of additives such as bactericide to keep bugs from growing, a hard water scale inhibitor, and pH control. We also add a thickener to get the uh, gel, uh, uh, to gel the water. This will lower pipe friction during pumping and help carry the sand into the crack. I'll explain the sand later. Uh, this gel is most commonly made from guar bean gum, a common food additive. Okay, so back to the crack. The crack is almost always vertical. Uh, and this, this uh, vertical crack is so because the, if it were horizontal, it would have to lift the rock layers above it. Continuing to pump, so what it's doing is parting the rock sideways uh, from the wellbore. Uh, uh, we continue to pump, uh, and so we pump the water uh, containing the chemicals, uh, and this water wedges open the crack, less than one centimeter wide. And this propagates the crack laterally out into the rock layer. The crack stays contained within the surrounding rock layers. After the crack is established, sand is mixed with the water and pumped into the crack. When pumping stops, the rock partially closes on the sand, which keeps the crack propped open. The sand is 200,000 times more permeable than the rock providing a conductive path back to the wellbore. Without the conductive path, the oil and gas has a hard time traveling through the rock pore spaces to the wellbore. With the propped crack or fracture in place, more oil or gas can reco be recovered from the rock layer. And that's it. During the fracturing process, there are no explosions, no major underground chemical reactions. The fracture is created by hydraulic pressure, the same kind of pressure that activates your brakes when you step on the brake pedal. The fracturing operation takes a few weeks. When done, the rigs and the pump trucks leave and the lease is reclaimed. The term shale gas, as you had also asked me about, or shale oil, refers to the type of rock that the oil and gas is found in. Shale oil is low permeability rock containing oil, and shale gas is even lower permeability rock containing gas. Once the oil and gas is in the pipeline, it is the same as the crude oil or natural gas as from the rock formations of other types. Actually, it's always the same. It, uh, it's just contained in different rocks. Okay, so thanks for the overview, Dave. Um, now that we have a bit of an understanding on the technology, I want us to go back in time a little bit. So fracking is a major topic today, but 
it's actually something that's been around for decades. And uh, I was fascinated to hear that you have been working since the 90s in the industry. Uh, and as I mentioned before, that you were working at Trican before they even owned any fracking equipment. So can you give us say, a short one or two minute overview on what's the history of the industry? So where did fracking come from and, and where are we at today? It, yeah, uh, the first fracturing operation was conducted over 60 years ago. Fracturing became commonplace in the oil industry over 35 years ago, and I was hired to be a fracturing specialist 20 years ago. As we explore for oil and gas, uh, rock with high permeability, that is rock highly connected with highly connected pore spaces that allow the oil and gas to flow easily, as this rock becomes harder and harder to find, fracturing became more and more necessary to enable economic recovery rates from oil and gas wells. In the last 10 years, horizontal wells were drilled to expose more of the rock layer to the wellbore, then creating vertical fracks in the rock layer along the horizontal wellbore further increases the exposure and therefore the recovery of the oil and gas from the pore spaces. In its most basic form, hydraulic fracturing that I've described earlier has not changed. The cracks in the rock are still the same. However, they have been many improvements to the process, including greener additives and water management. There have been over 1 million f wells fractured in North America to date. I did not know that the number was that high. That's fascinating. Okay, we're going to switch gears and throw it over to Jay. Um, so Jay, uh, I want to, uh, as I mentioned, I'd like for you to give us a bit of an overview on the environmental perspective on fracking. So. Um, can you just give us that broad overview? What are the concerns to do with fracking from the environmental perspective? Sure. Uh, Dave has given us a great overview of the, the history of uh, what, you know, in a shorthand we refer to fracking, but really it's the series of innovations in horizontal drilling and uh, hydraulic fracturing. And, and through that, the expo exploitation of resources that people have known have been there for a long time. Um, you know, what's different today is really the, the pace and scale at which this is taking place. Um, a while ago, we were talking about peak oil, that uh, North America, certainly production had peaked. Uh, the U.S. had uh, been able to largely meet uh, a major portion of its needs, and over time that's been in decline. Similarly, here in Alberta, uh, until the oil sands started to be developed, we, we too were, were uh, really facing declining production. Um, and so what's changed is uh, this technology has exposed us to a great deal more resource, both oil and gas. And the implications of that for uh, both for climate change, but also for regional uh, cumulative effects are quite significant. And so it's important from the perspective of the public interest to make sure we, we really know what we're getting into and what that might lock us into into the future. So. Number one, I think uh, people are concerned about water sourcing and handling when they talk about this. And this is a, a major water user. Um, as the length of these uh, horizontal wells has increased and the number of fracks that take place within them, um, you're, you're pushing a greater and greater amount of water down into, into the, the wellbore. And, and that has a number of implications. Number one, generally what you're doing is taking fresh water from uh, rivers, streams, and so on and injecting it downhole. So you're taking it out of the hydrological cycle. Um, so that's, that's quite significant. Now, increasingly, uh, companies are, are uh, expending a great deal of resource to make sure that they're recovering a lot of that water. Um, they're, they're pulling groundwater up to, to make use as part of the uh, fracturing process, but, but still we're talking about a significant impact on uh, water resources in the region. 
secondly, I guess, would be, and for an organization like mine, which is primarily focused on climate change, um, you know, the implications in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So on the one hand, you know, a lot of, a lot of talk has focused on the potential for natural gas to displace coal and other dirtier forms of energy in the electricity sector. And that's, that's potentially quite exciting. And certainly in the U.S. you see that they've uh, brought the, the overall emissions uh, down quite substantially. Um, now, the reality, of course, is that as we commit to natural gas, we may be uh, postponing tough choices that we have to make in the future. Scientists are calling for an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions globally by 2050. And if we lock into natural gas, we may in, fel- in fact be locking ourselves into uh, a four degree or six degree uh, climate change scenario. Um, so the IEA in its report on the golden age of natural gas notes that uh, in the best of all uh, cases, assuming uh, green completions are undertaken, which, which we'll get into later on, um, even in that situation, if natural gas grows at the pace and scale that people have been predicting, that we're likely to lock ourselves into what would be uh, you know, a very dramatic and unsustainable climate scenario, which may have significant implications for civilization. So that's the concern in a nutshell. Um, I guess finally, uh, you know, the, the, the big story, of course, is cumulative effects. So uh, while individually each of the wells that are, are developed for uh, shale oil or, or shale gas, tide oil really, or shale gas, uh, the, the impact isn't that great. It's the cumulative effect of all this development at the same time over a landscape and what that might do both for, for uh, water management, but also for uh, biodiversity, habitat fragmentation, uh, and then overall in, in terms of air emissions and air quality. So the objective uh, that we need to keep in mind at all times is uh, how do we develop this resource uh, responsibly, sustainably, uh, with the consent of the local communities, um, and with a view towards managing it within the constraints that are set by, by climate change and wanting to make the necessary cuts in emissions that would keep Canada on pace to meet its 2020 target, but also globally to allow us to achieve the 2050 80% reduction that would be necessary to avoid dangerous climate disruption. And Jay, you touched on local communities. Um, I want to follow up on some of the environmental perspectives with the social issues surrounding fracking. So what are the primary concerns you hear from local communities or Aboriginal populations about fracking? Thanks for that, Sean. Uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, the Pemmin Institute convened a national dialogue of thought leaders on uh, shale gas development and really exploring both the, the, the national and global implications, but also the regional and local. Uh, and the three messages that came through the strongest in our, in our dialogue with uh, stakeholders representing uh, communities as well as First Nations and, uh, and, and the scientists who are involved in studying a lot of this has been, number one, that people are concerned about uh, fracking chemicals. Uh, They're concerned about the toxicity of those chemicals, uh, their fate uh, once they're injected into the groundwater and whether that can lead to contamination. Uh, And, you know, as Dave's pointed out, the the likelihood of that in deep formations is, of course, very small. Um, Secondly, of course, the boom effect. So an increase in traffic and noise, a number of trucks using uh, rural roads and so on. That's that's a a major concern for for local residents. Um, There's an emerging concern around earthquakes and the potential for uh, the injection of water into these formations to create uh, disturbances and indeed to to cause shaking at the the ground level. And we've seen some examples of that in a number of locations. 
I think overall, and, and this, this speaks to energy development in Canada in general, uh, the uh, ability of uh, companies to access resources that are owned or uh, under the sovereign dominion of uh, First Nations is going to be one of the defining challenges for our generation. So the extent to which First Nations are bought, it into, bought into the process and feel that their needs are being met, um, that the resources are being developed in a way that's consistent with their vision for uh, environmental sustainability will be uh, particularly challenging for people who are trying to develop these resources. Yeah. Um, you touched on some of the concerns around sort of water usage and, and earthquakes and whatnot. Uh, with fracking, while Dave touched on the fact that it's got a multi-decade-long history, it's really in the past sort of six to seven years that it's exploded. Um, where does the science and research on fracking stand? Are there are there specific examples or, or concrete uh, research that's been done on any of the damages or issues related to fracking that you can point people towards? Absolutely. I think this is, uh, you know, a very lively debate in the academic community as well as for regulators. And so what you're seeing increasingly, in, and I think this is a positive development, is the engagement of uh, the best scientists in the process of informing decision making around this kind of development. In some ways, you might say this is uh, a lesson learned here in Canada around um, perhaps the missed opportunities in development of the oil sands. Um, so number one, uh, the Council of Canadian Academies, which is the, the Council of Canadian Academies of Science, uh, has commissioned a review uh, on behalf of the federal government looking at the environmental uh, challenges associated with uh, shale gas development, and their report will be coming out this spring. Uh, that represents really Canada's leading thinking, much like the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., on what the environmental challenges are as well, how to ma as, well as how to manage these. Um, so that's coming out soon, and I think will be a definitive um, study for what's needed in terms of management in Canada. Um, in the U.S., a number of studies have already taken place, and of course globally. And I, I pointed earlier to the International Energy Agency's uh, Golden Age of Natural Gas study. Uh, very interesting. And what, what that report finds is that uh, the environmental issues associated with shale gas development are in large part manageable. Um, they don't come to a, a, a place where they are able to, to see a clear path to the management of the greenhouse gas side of the story. But uh, overall, their view is that at a relatively low cost, 7% of the cost of uh, uh, well development, that you could in fact mitigate all of these other uh, environmental considerations. Um, so I think you know, if you want to, if you want to look out there, there's a number of very important research um, processes underway, advisory panels, and so on. Uh, Quebec's uh, Shale Gas Commission has recently released their report just in the last week, uh, which which is an economic and environmental. Uh, as well as social review of the development of the resource. Um, and, and in fact, what they did was establish a moratorium during the time that their uh, scientific and policy review was underway. So I think different uh, governments are going to come to different conclusions in terms of what they're willing to allow and how they're, uh, the conditions under which they're willing to allow it to take place. Uh, and that'll be both a, a reflection of the maturity of the science as well as um, the needs of policy in, in terms of uh, making thoughtful decisions and figuring out how to make it make sense, um, how to regulate it, how to make sure you've got the enforcement capacity and so on. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Jay. So, uh, as I mentioned, I want to kick off with just some open debate questions to stir the conversation uh, amongst both of us, both of you. Um, 
And so the, the first thing that I want to kick off with is just a simple question. So what do you think is the single most important question to ask like, as a citizen in determining the future of fracking in North America? And uh, we'll kick off with Dave and then go to Jay. Sure. <clears throat> I think the most important is uh, asking, are the risks manageable? Uh, most, if not all, regulators will tell you the risks are absolutely manageable. And the fact that so many wells have been developed without incident is uh, proof of that. Okay, perfect. Thanks. And Jay, what would you say is is that question to ask in the future development of fracking? Well, I think it's the question about what this does for our ability to meet global greenhouse gas targets and whether we're delaying hard choices um, in the pursuit of an easy fix. Uh, natural gas offers us certainly an opportunity in terms of decarbonizing, uh, but that, that opportunity is conditional on a number of things that governments have been reluctant to do. Number one, are they prepared to mandate green completions? In the U.S., the EPA is committed to the obligation that all operators will be required to capture um, and, uh, and either flare or, or make beneficial use of natural gas uh, during the course of uh, development of the wells. Um, and that, that regulation will come into place in 2015. Uh, in Canada, we have no such obligation. In Alberta, we have what has been, uh, I think, a leading regulation in terms of management of uh, venting and flaring emissions associated with, with well production. But unfortunately, um, you know, we haven't kept pace with the times. And, and you can even see here in Alberta the, the, that uh, venting emissions are on the upswing. So methane emissions, which is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas, uh, are on, on the upswing for the first time in Alberta in a very, very long time. And so uh, we need to take firm action on that and figure out how we're going to do that and how to do it in a way that uh, as well allows us to position ourselves for what will be a low carbon economy. Um, we have this tremendous resource here, both through the oil sense and now increasingly in the unconventional space. Um, and so the question is, how do we make use of this unique moment in time, uh, both to figure out how to live within environmental limits based on science uh, and on, on uh, community acceptance, but also how do we use this opportunity to transition our economy to one which is competitive in a future in which um, carbon emissions are very tightly constrained? Yeah. And Dave, I want to sort of follow up on that question to you that um, Jay brought up some of the concerns around venting and the, we discussed some of the regulatory aspects of, of fracking. But uh, w one of the criticisms of industry has been that they often wait for regulation to make significant action on any sort of environmental uh, issue. So do you have examples of industry getting in front of regulation or industry getting in front of situations like this to try to take a proactive approach? Or is it largely waiting for regulation and ensuring compliance once regulation is in place? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's quite a few uh uh, examples of the uh, oil industry being able to uh, work within <coughs> together in their various associations to work together to uh, manage their resources better and to pool their infrastructure so that uh, it doesn't have as much impact on the uh, on the communities in which they're working. Okay, and so I'm going to move on to uh, my next question there. So. Oh, sorry. I think, Jay, Jay you have a, a follow-up? Yeah, actually, I'd like to point out a couple interesting examples. I think, first, the uh, Center for Sustainable Shale Development in the U.S., where a group of operators got together with a group of uh, legislators, environmental groups, and scientists to develop a set of principles to guide responsible shale development in the U.S. Uh, that's focused in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then, secondly, I think... Um, 
you know, even the, the development of voluntary principles through PSAC, through the, the Services Association of Canada, is an encouraging example of where things might go. I think what's probably needed is something more akin to the... Um, uh, the collaboration that the oil sands industry has undertaken, where um, the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance has been struck to essentially look at how to radically advance environmental technology. And I think a similar um, commitment is required from, from shale developers. Yes, I, I would agree. I, I was with PSAC on our tours of various communities, uh, asking the, uh, the stakeholders in various communities, uh, you know, what their concerns are, and so that w we can address them as we go forward. Perfect. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, guys. I'm going to jump into a question about metrics. So. This is something that the, I went to business school and we got ingrained in our heads over and over again that you, ma you manage what you measure. And so uh, when we think about success metrics for fracking that are related to both the environment and the economy, what should we be thinking about? And, and what, sh what numbers or what facts or what statistics or what metrics should citizens be paying attention to in order to evaluate whether their region or their operators uh, are, are successfully developing the resource in an environmental way? So uh, we'll kick off with Jay and then go over to Dave. Sure. I, I think I flag that idea that there's, you know, with the with this kind of opportunity, there's also responsibility. So I think the, you know, the obvious thing around setting metrics uh, for environmental performance around such things as greenhouse gas emissions uh, per unit of energy produced, uh, energy return on energy investment. So it takes a great deal of energy to produce energy. And I think we need to be much more thoughtful about what we're doing and what kind of trade-offs we're making along the way. Uh, water use, of course, per, per unit of energy or per well. Um, uh, tracking seismicity, induced seismicity, which is a concern for communities, uh, managing and mitigating at a, at a kind of regional level um, and setting uh, boundaries around cumulative effects or cumulative disturbance in any particular region, uh, as well as tracking the amount of infrastructure associated with each development, making sure that we're uh, keeping up with or, or minimizing the amount of uh, infrastructure that's going to be needed in place. And then finally, I think, and this is really important and doesn't get talked about enough, um, you know, as, as was mentioned earlier, there's over a million wells that have been developed in the U.S. Um, I think the, the point around how do we manage this legacy and make sure that we're not left with a lingering environmental problem in the future. Um, and in particular in jurisdictions that are unfamiliar with oil and gas development and haven't got the mechanisms in place to address that legacy. So I think there are a number of obvious metrics around performance and what's critically needed is uh, independent benchmarking, uh, transparency around that data and the opportunity for communities to hold operators accountable, uh, as well as for industry to look over its shoulders and see what leading practices and to you know benchmark uh, transparency drives performance improvement and you know if you know your neighbor's doing better than you are and you're the VP or CEO you're you're quite likely to to take action on that and say how do we do better than those guys and how does that become a source of competitive advantage for us uh, and and Dave what would what would be your thoughts on on metrics that should be focused on well I'd like to say that in water stressed areas fresh water should not be used for fracturing and that doesn't need to be the fracturing sector can use salt water and reuse water uh, as they're doing now, um, but uh, I, I think they can do uh, more of that. Um, uh, w with the seismicity, uh, to date, uh, the seismic activity caused by fracturing is uh, at a very small level, similar to uh, uh, the low magnitude of seismic activity caused by dam building and, and coal mining. Uh, so the, uh, 
the seismic activity is rarely felt on surface, so I, I really don't think that that is going to be a big issue going forward. Um, one, one of the things that is worth I identifying is that uh, when we're talking about fracking as it relates, relates to policy or public discussions, uh, we hear the we hear uh, the term fracking and well back to the seismic is say fracking causes earthquakes. Well, it's uh, not the fracking process, but rather maybe water disposal that's associated with fracking that is caused the is the culprit. And so we have to make sure that we're identifying the the right. Uh, culprits here and you know deep water dis water disposal has been used by many industries not just the oil and gas industry we see see things like uh, fracking terms like fracking pipelines or fracked gas and these these uh, terms are um, uh, are misleading and and uh, cause a you know it's a dishonest representation of the process involved and uh, it gets us off track uh, right at the start Okay. Um, so I've got just two more questions for you both. Uh, my first one is that you, you both get to wear your premier hat for a day. Um, if you guys were the, the premier uh, of a province like Alberta or, or the leader of any political, be it a country, be it a state, be, a, be it a province, for one day, and you had the authority to enact one piece of legislation in regarding to fracking, uh, what would it be and why? So we'll, we'll again start with Jay and then move to Dave. Well, I think, uh, you know, the number one uh, obligation, I think, that is going to be increasingly uh, part of development of shale gas is likely, and, and tidal for that matter, is likely to be around this green completions question. Um, so I think if we're to have any hope at all of uh, constraining our greenhouse gas emissions, what I'd like to see is firm regulation on uh, the production of either associated gas, which is gas that's produced as a byproduct of the oil and, and which, you know, generally the operators are not seeking and so we'll look for the the cheapest means to essentially dispose of, or um, or in the in the context of gas production where um, you know they're they're uh, stuck at the at the point of initial production with a high production volume and, and can't can't deal with it in the context of the equipment that they're planning for the for the long-term development. And so I think that moving to a green completions regime is critical for the long-term viability of the industry, but also for um, for Canada to meet its greenhouse gas targets. Perfect. Okay. And Dave? Yeah, the Alberta Energy Regulator has already acted to create new directives for the hydraulic fracturing sector, which is which is a really good thing. Uh, but uh, as far as a new policy, there could be a better policy uh, to manage the cumulative effect of oil and gas development and encourage cooperation between oil and gas companies in managing water or the, or the needed infrastructure. Uh, and, and that, as, as Jay was saying, that, that would also help with the uh, emissions uh, you'd be able to uh, collect the solution gas more easily if there was if there was greater cooperation uh, throughout the the oil field. And the the water situation is something that comes up quite frequently uh, in discussions about fracking. And so, is it something that's feasible for us to create a mandate that it be saltwater and saline aquifers that are used for fracking? How likely is a scenario in which no fresh water is used for fracking? Uh, I don't think that's uh, all that likely. Uh, 
as I said, in, in water-stressed areas, that's something that we should be doing. But there's areas that we're doing hydraulic fracturing that's uh, fresh water is abundant. And that still may be the most environmentally friendly way of doing it because if you're using salt water, you need uh, um, to contain and store that, that salt water. Uh, and if you, uh, you're exposing uh, the risk of leaking. Uh, so if you have fresh water, there's just less uh, exposure as well as to, to obtain the salt water in the middle of British Columbia or Northern Alberta, you have to drill more wells and, and have more infrastructure to be able to obtain the, uh, the the source for the salt water. Okay. Uh, so the the final just piece of uh, tidbit that I want from each of you is uh, fracking is something that is becoming more and more important and is a conversation that more and more citizens need to get engaged with. So if you were to provide our listeners with one resource that you recommend uh, people either read or research or, or participate more actively in, uh, what would it be? And we'll start with Jay. Well, I think there's there's two levels of engagement in this. So if this is your first time out and you want to have a kind of uh, entry level introduction to you know fracking, what is what is hydraulic fracturing 101? Uh, I think the Rational Middle Energy series uh, produced by filmmaker Gregory Kallenberg down in the states is a great introduction, and he looks at it from the perspective of what does it look like to actually undertake a, a hydraulic fracturing operation. You get to see the trucks and so on, and understand what the process looks like and what some of the the trade offs are, which is I think the the inherent question that people need to be asking. I think uh, a second level would be, you know, if you want uh, a good overview of the science and technology and a lot of the, the, the kind of higher level questions around environmental management, social performance, and so on, I'd encourage people to have a look at the International Energy Agency's um, uh, Golden Age of Natural Gas report. I think it offers a, a very interesting summary of the environmental challenges as well as the opportunities for managing those challenges. Um, and then, of course, uh, for the latest on what's going on in BC, for the development of LNG and uh, the, the growth of the shale gas business in, in British Columbia and, and here in Alberta as well, I draw people to our website, uh, www.pembina.org. Okay, perfect. And Dave, your recommendations on great resources? I would second the rational middle. And uh, uh, another website is uh, the Canadian Society of Unconventional Resources. Uh, it's uh, S, I mean, sorry, csur.com. Uh, and you go to their resource tab. Perfect. Okay, well, that wraps up the questions that I had, and I just wanted to extend a big thank you to both of you for participating in this. Uh, it's a start of a conversation and the start of a dialogue, and, and it's something that uh, I, I think I, I've heard from, from both of you that we need to get ahead of something like fracking. And I, I personally, I grew up in Fort McMurray from 1997 to 2004, and so I sort of witnessed what it was like to live in a boom town where there wasn't a strategy in place and there wasn't a forward-thinking plan on how to manage the development and the growth that existed in that industry. And so uh, I think I just want to extend a, a big thank you to both of you for helping not only discuss your own perspectives, but just really start a dialogue on how we get in front of fracking and how we understand the cost benefits and trade-offs. So thank you so much for participating and, and we'd love to have you both back on a future show. Okay, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. That was Dave Brown of Tricant Well Services and Jay Switzer of the Pemina Institute discussing the future of fracking. All right, so next up in studio, I'm excited to introduce you to Julia Kavuma, who's the Regional Summits Manager for Student Energy, and she's got some interesting and exciting global updates from our team around the world. Hi, Sean. It's great to join you in the studio. And today we'll be hearing from students around the world 
they'll be sharing the most exciting stories that are happening in energy in their regions uh, from Latin America, North America, and Europe. So first up from Latin America, we have Giovanna, who will be talking about the recent reforms in the Mexican government with respect to their national oil company. In December, after some controversy, the new energy reform was approved by the president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto. According to this new set of laws, Pemex, the state-owned petroleum company, will now be able to accept contracts and private investments from other companies in order to increase its production. Pemex is Latin America's second largest enterprise by annual revenue, only behind Petrobras, its Brazilian counterpart. There is some controversy surrounding whether or not the change will protect Mexico's national interests. According to some parties, it will not, and they will not stand for it. Although the government opposes, saying that the passing of this reform will improve Mexico's economy. The need for this initiative came from Pemex, lack of resources and means to explore and use new reserves of deep oil and shale gas to their full potential, thus preventing growth for the company. In Mexico, about half of the national budget is allocated to oil-related expenditures. Now we'll have Fatou from North America, and she'll be talking about renewable energy and solar in the USA. Legislative change stirs up uncertainty and healthy debates in any growing sector, and the renewable energy industry, particularly solar, is no different. In 2017, the federal solar investment tax credits will be cut by 66%, falling from 30% to 10% of the total solar project value. I believe that the upcoming solar investments tax credit cuts may also be a litmus test for potentially reducing the cost of capital within the industry. Because existing solar investments have appeared to yield stable, predictable cash flows, the capital markets are starting to become more interested in investing in these projects. As the solar industry matures, it is becoming evident that greater majority of solar projects have fewer operational issues, provide stable electricity production, and entities purchasing the electricity have fewer problems given the right electricity price and credit. The future seems quite promising for solar in diverse markets as project costs continue to decline. The focus on solar projects' key cost drivers and capitalizing on them for the next two years leading into the 2017 Federal Solar Investment Tax Credit cut will be crucial, certainly an exciting time with big opportunities for the industry. The sentiment is that solar will continue to grow quickly. However, it's also apparent that a framework might be imperative to navigate and understand the potential obstacles beyond 2017. And finally, we have Christina in Europe, and she'll be talking about shale in the UK. Debate over hydraulic fracturing of shale rock has taken its place in the British newsstand. In early January 2014, Prime Minister David Cameron announced that the UK government would give more tax revenue to councils in support of fracking, while the French oil and gas company Total said it would invest £21 million in the UK shale gas industry. The process is expected to boost the British economy, creating new jobs along with giving the country some of the energy security it has long tried to achieve. Experts, however, argue it would not decrease energy prices as much as the original impression has been and the jobs could be replaced with technology. The method of extracting gas from the bedrock is also considered controversial 
due to fears over small earth tremors and water contamination from the drilling process. The latest news have raised the issue of property rights. The Department of Energy and Climate Change said that it is considering changing trespass laws to allow fracking under homes without their owners' permission. More questions arise as further projects are introduced across the country. Could shale gas be the beginning of an energy revolution in Europe? Thanks so much for those updates, Julia. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and we're looking forward to having you back next month. Thanks for having me. To cap off the show this month, we leave you with winter-themed energy hacks. Energy Hacks is a fun and funky look into traditional and radical ways you can cut down on the power, gas, and heating you use. Think of this as your crash course at saving money while saving the environment. In honor of our beloved Canadian winters, this session of Energy Hacks is a celebration of the wonderful world of winter. We'll explore the top five quirky ways to make your energy use fall along with the mercury. First up, the fridge. This might be the quirkiest hack of the whole bunch. If you want to reduce the effort and electricity use of your fridge, try taking advantage of the freezing temperatures outside. Fill an empty ice cream bucket with water, place it outside to freeze, and then put the ice block back into your fridge. There's even some fancy math behind this hack. Warming two kilograms of ice from say, minus 10 to zero degrees requires 42,000 joules of energy. That energy comes from the air in the fridge, and when the air in the fridge loses that energy, it cools down, thus preventing the motor from having to turn on for longer and saving electricity. Number two, buy an electric mattress pad. This hack only works if you turn the heat down at night. Some people turn the heat down to 15 degrees or cooler at night, and their electric mattress pad keeps them cozy and warm. The cost of running the mattress pad is generally three to five cents per night and is offset by huge savings of up to 10% on your heating bill. Number three, snowbanks are winter's refrigerator. This was a trick many of us learned in college in Canada when the fridge was too full of beer at a friend's house. Rather than throw your room temperature beer in the fridge and stretch the motor cooling it all, throw your beer, pop, and other room temperature liquids in the snowbank or on the back porch for 30 to 60 minutes before throwing them in the fridge. By putting them into the fridge at a cool temperature, the fridge then only has to keep them cold using much less electricity. Just make sure you don't leave them out there or they will explode. Number four, turn the vents off to rooms you don't use. This one seems obvious, but most people forget to close off the vents to rooms they don't use all winter. We all have the random junk room or spare office that rarely gets used. Cut your total energy consumption down by reducing the heating footprint of your house. Last but not least, number five, bubble wrap your windows. This one might sound kooky, but is particularly effective for older, single pane windows that are huge energy sucks. The reason dual pane windows are so effective at insulation is because the air pocket between the two windows is a fantastic insulator. Air trapping heat is the reason igloos are legitimate shelter options in the north. All of our American listeners know how much we love our igloos in Canada. 
While not as effective as double-paned windows, bubble wrap is a quick, easy, cheap way to improve the energy efficiency of your windows while also blocking out your view of miserable winter conditions outside. There you have it, folks. Five energy hacks to help you embrace winter and save energy in the process. And with that, we bring to a close the first ever episode of Energy Voices. We want to encourage you once again to reach out online and use the hashtag Energy Voices on either Twitter or Facebook to share your own opinions, share your own thoughts on fracking or carbon engineering as a company or any of the topics discussed today. Uh, this is meant to start a dialogue and start a conversation on energy and we encourage any and all perspectives to participate. As we close off, we want to extend a sincere thank you to Mark Affeld, uh, Mike, and the entire team at CJSW who partnered with us to make this a reality. We will be airing Energy Voices the last Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and all episodes can be found on podcast at cjsw.com. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Mark Affeld, with contributions from Jennifer Matchett and Julia Kabuma. Editing and production assistance was also provided by Kiever Tremblay. See you next month on Energy Voices. <laughs>